Episode of Hitting Pater. This is episode number eight. Uh, I am Alex Beaudry. Uh With me today, I have a special guest, uh, John Flake, with the Peak Performance Project, uh, otherwise known as P3. He is the lead performance coach in their Santa Barbara office. And John, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Santa Barbara, California. Sounds pretty amazing right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, I didn't go, go to the beach just to make. I don't want to make you feel bad. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got hooked up with P3, and what you guys are doing over at P3? Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, rugby. That's where I kind of got the training bug. Uh, I was a collegiate and semi-pro rugby player, um, and that was that was where I found the uh, the benefit the training could have on an athletic career. It helped me a ton. You know, it, it definitely put me over the edge and getting to a higher level of sport. And then when I was done playing, I wanted to um, share that knowledge or kind of share that that field with athletes that were younger than myself when I found it. So you know, I decided to switch majors uh, in college, um, much to the chagrin of my parents, very late on in my film studies career and uh, go back and do an exercise science degree. Um, after I did that, um, I decided that I was working on like a basic internship kind of strength coach program on the East coast at a small school called Pfeiffer university. When I wrapped that up, I packed up my car and was like, I'm coming back to California. However, whatever I have to do to make it work out here, I'm going to just during that time, I applied to a couple of different strength conditioning facilities for internships. P3 was one of them. I did the interview on my drive back and instead of driving back to San Francisco, I drove South to Santa Barbara, I did our internship. And then that was, almost six years ago and I've kind of slowly moved up in roles and more responsibilities over the years, but that's kind of roughly how I landed here. So I had the exact opposite experience. Um, I went to school and I was a physiology major, um, right. with the intent of going on to medical school. And it took, I think about a semester of chemistry and biology to, for me to figure out that wasn't where I was going to yeah. go. So, uh, I did what any rational person would do. And I went to law school. Uh, cause I couldn't right. handle the science. So <laughs> that was, um, hey, I, I get it. I was a big shock to the system going from writing papers about Batman to doing chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can only imagine. Um, so, um, let's talk about P3. Um, you guys are doing some pretty incredible things in terms of training. It's, you're not just, you know, Globo gym, you guys are actually right. doing some pretty incredible stuff. Uh, can you give anybody who's listening, uh, you know, a, a deeper understanding of P P3's philosophy, um, how you were founded and, and what you guys are doing out there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think our founder, Dr. Marcus Elliott's vision was that, you know, there's a lot left on the table athletic training wise in terms of how we approach looking at athletes and how we approach athletes as an individual, right? The classic model was doesn't matter what position, what sport you play, everyone does the football program from the strength coach or whatever it is, then there's nothing special or unique about it. Um, and every, every athlete in every sport has a unique skill set or a unique ability that allows them to play at a high level if they get there. So you know, understanding what makes an athlete special and unique and maybe what makes them flawed or more likely to get hurt than other athletes 
Marcus wanted to quantify that in a smarter way and then start to ask better questions and get better answers from that. So, you know, instead of a gym where people just come in and here's a program, you know, every athlete comes in and kind of does a full assessment that we feel is pretty applicable for their given sport. So not even basketball to soccer is the assessment exactly the same. Um, and then we kind of can, you know, with basketball, we can compare that to a really big database of, of athletes and say, you know, if you're two standard deviations away from the norm in this given metric, then we see a lot of these guys get hurt or maybe you're incredible at this metric. And that's kind of what makes your game unique and your ability to stop and create separation. That's, this is a nice kind of physiological factor that kind of shows up in your game. So it can tell a story about an athlete, but also help us understand a better path to keeping them healthy and giving them better longevity and finding holes in their game that if you're really great at slowing down, then how do we make you better at speeding up as well? So it, it's basically just kind of looking at it as a, a more in-depth picture as opposed to just some sort of cookie cutter program where just everyone does the same thing and, and off you go and good luck. That's how I was turned on to P3. So actually I had heard about Dr. Elliot uh, of all places on a Joe Rogan podcast. I can't remember the name of the author, but there was an was author. about the book. comfort crisis. Yeah, there you go. Who, who yeah. had interviewed Dr. Elliot as part of that book. And correct me if I have the facts wrong, but at the time, uh, you guys were working with, I believe, Luka Doncic. And, yeah. and the story that came out of that was, you know, Luka can stop better than anybody else on the planet, which maybe it's, I just would have never thought of that as a concept when it comes to training, like how well you can stop and slow down as being an asset. But if you watch Luca play, he he's the king of driving and pulling up and you're already two Mm -hmm. steps past him as he's getting ready to shoot. So I I think about that and your guys' slogan is unlocking the secrets of athlete movement. And I think about how to leverage that in terms of creating advantages is crucial. When I think about it in the football world, I can only imagine the possibilities there. Do you have any other examples of, you know, certain, you don't have to name players if you don't want to, but like certain, certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Characteristics of player movement that could be used as an advantage. Yeah. So like, the, the example that I kind of like jump to sometimes when we look in like regards to basketball, just one quick correction is that there is only one person on earth that is better at stopping than Luca, at least on our assessment. And that's James Harden. Right. And okay. they're very similar games, right? Like if James Harden is the 99th percentile, then Luca's like 97th. Right. So it's like, you're, he's right up next to him, but James is the guy that kind of broke the mold in that sense. Um, but yeah, other than that, you're not wrong. Um, I like to look at, so we have this, um, we published this paper not long ago on um, different kind of jump mechanics in um, NBA players, right? And using the counter movement jump. And we kind of classified it into three different groups. And one of those groups we call like a stiff flexor group, right? So their ability to kind of like really quickly not go through a ton of range and get up to their kind of close to their max height fairly quickly. Um, So, you know, something like that, someone like Miles Turner is a stiff flexor, right? And then you look at Miles being one of the highest per game blocks in the NBA, right? And then another guy that's a stiff flexor is Jaden McDaniel. So his rookie year, he was like second or first in blocks in the NBA, right? So like if you add the ability to anticipate and good defensive positioning with stiff flexor ability to get off the ground really quickly, that equals block shots to me, right? So 
I think that's another kind of easy parallel you can draw of like, yeah, I think this is something we see in a lot of our really elite shot blockers is it's, and it's definitely anticipation based and it's skill, it's knowledge based of the game, but it's also, you have the physiological tools to need little less anticipation and be able to rely on some of your physicality to get some of these blocks. So like, that's another example I like to throw out there from time to time. So when you look at someone who is like a stiff flexor or pick your favorite physiological trait, when you're setting up a training program, is it to enhance that trait to improve it? Or, or is it more designed to round out areas where they may be weak or both? How does, how does that look? I mean, I think that's an ever evolving answer to be honest is like, if you think there's room for improvement or you want to, obviously we're not going to just not do anything that they're good at, you know, like there's, you're going to give them an ability to kind of maximize that potential in some senses. But at the end of the day, you know, my job as a, as a coach and especially performance coach is to give them what they don't get from basketball. Right. That's why you don't see guys in our gym dribbling basketballs and doing reactionary drills and things like that, because that's just basketball. Right. So for me is it's odds are that he does enough of his kind of like stiff flexor, quick jumps off of in the, on the basketball court. So we might do some things focusing on some mechanical changes to improve his ability to be durable doing that over time. So we might, might kind of lean into that, but it's really not, I'm not looking for overall output in that sense. I'm looking for how do I make this more durable? So it's like, yes, we're doing something that he's good at, but we're trying to make that more sustainable. Um, beyond that, I think it's like, you've got to kind of poke holes in their game and give them something that they don't have or look for something that they do. And look, that's not always easy. I and mean, we get guys like sure. Scotty, Scotty Barnes that come in and are just like yeah, incredible athletes. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm really having to dive into some deep metrics to find stuff that he's bad at to say that, yeah, let's get better at this. And to say that he's bad is not even, it's, that is the wrong term. He's just not as elite as he is at other things. So it's, it's stuff like that. But for me, it's like I, my job is to poke holes and find ways that you can get challenged and, and pushed and get better as opposed to just leaning into what you're already good at. You mentioned uh, in your opening um, limiting risk of injury or improving longevity. Uh, this is another huge area of my focus as I look to the NFL, the average length of an NFL player's career is less than four years. Right. And if you're, you know, a late draft pick or an undrafted free agent, an injury could be, you know, the end of your career. Um, you guys are doing some pretty um, front or cutting edge things in this, you know, the motion sensors and some of those things. Right. Could you talk a little bit about what you're looking for from a biomechanical point of view and, and how you're working to prevent non-contact injuries? Yeah. I mean, I think it, there's an element of that that is definitely sport specific, right? There's, you know, there's different physiological demands for a guy that's playing basketball versus a guy that's playing football, but there are definitely a lot of like biomechanical kind of risk factors that I would say are hold true across a number of different sports. So, you know, a lot of our assessment is kind of designed to understand for starters, you know, what's the first point of contact with the ground in every movement? It's your foot, right? So we want to see what you're doing from the foot all the way up to your hips, your back, and how all of that interrelates. Um, and it's, it's, it is an interrelated system. It isn't just what your knees do in isolation to what your feet do. So it, understanding, okay, if we can uh, take a look at ground contacts, how does that affect the knee up, up the chain? And we see the knee tracks well or it caves in okay, the classical way of looking at that is that that's a weakness through the hip. And that may not be 
untrue, but it isn't looking at the full picture. So we look at something like a non-contact ACL tear, you generally have that, what you call like a valgus moment where the knee kind of collapses in and caves in. Um, and it's not hard for people to understand that you probably don't want your knees to cave in and certain movements are really explosive change of direction movements. Um, but a huge amount of that is, is, is controlled by what the foot does first to set up the knee and hip in a way to function well. And if your foot doesn't do that, then we're already screwed from the bottom up. All right. So we want to take a look at like, okay, when we, when we do a jump or a sprint or change of direction, what is our foot doing? What is the knee doing because of that? What is the femur doing? What is the hip doing? Um, so it's kind of taking a more uh, interrelated approach joint to joint level of like what we're doing. And then, you know, the more people we assess, the more we can say, okay, if, if we had a number of people with this metric that were two standard deviations away from the norm, we follow them for the next three years, five of those 25 people that had, that lived in that range all got hurt. So we know that that metric is going to be related to injury and look, injury is impossible to fully predict. You can say that you're at a higher risk and you can say that you're at a lower risk, but there's a million factors that go into it. Biomechanics is just kind of one of it. And I think it's one of those things that this is definitely something that's evolving in terms of ACL tears. It's something that's always in people's mind because the amount of time missed um, and the amount of uh, kind of gruesome injuries you see that happen from it, especially in football. Uh, like I think when I think of ACL tears, I always think of like Navarro Bowman on the goal line. So a couple of years ago, or just like just turned essentially sideways and to, you know, those sort of things are not getting twisted but when you're just cutting in open space what happened in that open space where did was my foot in the wrong spot do i have some sort of weakness where my arch collapses and leads my knee to cave in it's understanding that kind of interconnection between the, the three different joints of the leg and how that leads to possibility of putting in a position where something can tear if that makes sense it does. So when you find a, an athlete who is in one of these high risk categories, does it come down to like teaching them how to run differently or how to like, is it, does it get down to that level where you're teaching an athlete how to, you know, place their foot on the ground when they're going to make a cut or what, what does it look like when you try to actually fix the potential problem? It's one of those things where to say that you could take an athlete that's, you know, full ground of does say you're taking a 25 year old running back. I'm not going to change everything about how he walks, runs, and changes direction. And there's a huge amount of how they change direction that may be part of what's making them successful, right? right? That like maybe the the unorthodox angles that they're able to set up and put and use to change direction is part of what allows them to be so good at changing direction because people can't anticipate as easily or something along those lines. So the short answer is no. Like I'm not going to change everything about how they move so they 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 look perfect by my eyes or our assessment or look better in our assessment. You know, we want to maximize their tools and then add some ability for them to be safer in those positions. So like if we take the example of like ground contact being poor and that leading to knee injury, you know, if I can just get you in a slightly better position that isn't drastically different from how you've been doing it before, and I can add some level of additional stiffness and strength through that ankle joint, then that's like a win for me that allows you to be you, but then I take some of the injury risk away from the way you're doing things, because there is an element of like natural tools and natural movement. And also there's an element of like, if you come into the gym and say at the most with us six days a week, and that's on the high end, you know, you're doing, I don't know, say a hundred repetitions of something, you'd still do thousands and thousands of that 
outside of the gym without me or before me. So to change that motor pattern entirely or say that I can make you just naturally move like that without having to think about it, it's probably completely false, right? So like, it's just about, like, there are certain times where like, you know, I can maximize straight line running and that's cool. Like I can help guys get faster in a straight line when you have a moment to think about running in a straight line. But ultimately all of this stuff has to be innate. It can't be something that they think about doing. And you can drill certain things repetition, but ultimately if I can just make the system overall more robust and still do what you do, that that makes sense. I mean, it would be like teaching someone who's right-handed to right left-handed, I think. You know, you could probably yeah. do it, but you'd have to really think about it and if you're thinking, you're already behind. If you're if you're working in youth athletics, there's an element of a yeah, I can teach you from the ground up. But if you're working with professional athletes that are full grown adults that have already gone through their highest levels of plasticity, then then it's it, there's a kind of a law of diminishing returns there. And like you said, they probably that's part of who they are and why they're probably successful as well. For sure. You mentioned uh, running in straight lines, and I mm -hmm. wanted to talk about this. So in my world, um, athletes and a lot of times their agents spend a lot of money, thirty, fifty thousand dollars on combine prep. And when I think right. about the the NFL combine, it's running in straight lines, it's jumping up and down in one spot, and it's bench pressing. <laughs> I mean, right. I suppose you have the you have the three cone drill, which has a little bit of lateral movement, but um it's interesting that the combine is still run the way it is at least in my opinion and when i sure. think about the amount of money that goes into prepping for it my hypothesis is that that money would be better spent um actually training for your season and what that might look like i right. wanted to get your sense on the differences between training for like a 40-yard dash or a bench press versus what you guys are doing which is much more functional much more ground up um mm -hmm. I, i'd be curious to get your thoughts to see if i'm on the right track there yeah i mean it's it part of i think the first kind of caveat to the question or, or what you have to think about is that there simultaneously is value and isn't value to it, right? There is actual monetary value to oh, you running sure. faster, right? For sure, yes. So like, it, and it's one of those things like that, that comes into the equation, you know, like, the, and, I, and it's in, you know, when I was younger, I'd be like, you know, combines are stupid. You know, we're not going to worry <laughs> about that. We're not going to prep for it. You're going to compare yep. for your sport. But ultimately, if you can make a million more dollars because you ran two tenths of a second faster, you should probably do that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it, the the combine the NFL combine is like very uh, simplistic in how it tries to approach quantifying athletes, right? That it still ends up being mostly the eyeball test for guys that like, yeah, sure, they get numbers on forties and stuff like that, and that I know that they do do some shorter splits now that maybe other coaches will look at, performance coaches might look at. Um, but it's like you said, it's only preparing you for these kind of very specific physical tasks that don't really have any correlation with success in the NFL. Right. It's like I, there was a study a while back that did a, kind of looking at, I forget what the metric was they were going by in terms of success. I think it was just like years played or like all pro teams made. I can't remember. Um, but the study looked at all the different tests and the leaders of those tests and people that did well and did, did, didn't do well. And how did that lead to success in the NFL? And the only one that had any sort of correlation to success in the NFL is the count, just raw strength and power output, which makes sense, right? If you're a really great jumper, 
oftentimes you're a really great sprinter, you're a really great athlete, and therefore you're a really great football player, right? So things like running in a straight line, you can always get better at it, but it doesn't necessarily prepare you for a sport. For me, like, you know, we have the, N- the NBA combine that we prepare guys for every year. And, you know, there are definitely certain tests that, you know, we don't value at all, right? Like they're going to do a bench press test. We will prepare them for the best way to do a bench press test, but they also understand that Kevin Durant did zero reps, right? So like, you know, the barrier to success for them is very different, but it's one of those things where, but if I can have someone that say, so comes in and says, you know, the, one of the big question marks in the, in the recruiting process is athleticism. And then I could have him go out and do these kind of closed chain tests that are very coachable and learnable in a lot of senses um, and become a, and put up these great numbers, then that those athletic question marks often go away. Um, so that, that's a place where like, yeah, like I don't think that preparing for one-off tests is super useful, but if it, if it means it's going to benefit you and your opportunities going forward, there's a benefit to it. But, but I never go all in, right? You th- see the classical model of NFL combine prep is like, endless bench press stuff, endless sprint mechanic stuff where you're just solely preparing for the tests. And I take the approaches that we can probably spend 25% of our time preparing you for the tests and 75% of our time preparing you to be better for the NBA. That like these metrics matter and we're going to focus on these metrics. I'm also going to teach you to get better at bench press, but whether you get great at it or not, I don't care. So I think there's a balance that has to be struck between the two because there is some level of value for certain people. And that value is different for everyone, right? If you get a lottery pick, there is absolutely no value to the combine to them. Whereas if you get someone that's on the fringe, there is value to them. So there's a balance of how much you have to do it. Um, But for me, it's always, always, always more longevity and preparing you for a great career. And then the secondary byproduct is prep you for this specific combine. Yeah. I mean, and you're right about the value. There's, there's a story every year about some guy who had just an amazing workout and some general manager somewhere fell in love with them. And the guy probably got drafted two rounds too early. But that's also right. a one-off. I, you know, I think most scouts like the combine because they get physicals, so they can actually, you know, poke and prod these guys and get their medical information, yeah. and then do the interview where they can actually see, you know, can this guy learn an offense or does he have any question marks in his past or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's super interesting. You mentioned, um, and and on your website too, you you guys have your your programs. If you're in an intensive program, can be five, maybe six days long. There's a lot that goes into recovery, Um, you know, to a professional athlete, five or six days a week may not seem like much, Um, but I'd be curious, you know, there's a lot of new technology, wearable devices, tracking, tracking sleep, and um, how does recovery play a role in, in what you guys do? I mean, it's a big part of it, right? But uh, I would say that a lot of times what I see in high level sport and youth sport to, to some degree um, is a lot of like putting the cart before the horse in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is you see a lot, the whoop, you see the aura ring, all these different wearable technologies, tracking sleep, recovery score, all these things. Like they're, they're useful tools for sure. But oftentimes what happens is we go out and look for cryotherapy chambers, Normatec, whoop scores, all these things, while also not focusing on sleep, hydration, and nutrition. Yeah. Right. And it, to me, that that's that's the horse. That's the thing that makes everything go. And if all of that is is in line or within a reasonable degree, then we can start to get more complex about, OK, 
how much how much good sleep are you getting? How much bad sleep are you getting? How much is this specific assessment or a specific workout affecting your system? The one thing that we do with all our athletes, amateur, cross professional, every single one of our athletes, we do you know, like daily neuromuscular fatigue monitoring. So on our force plates, basically at the end of everyone's warm up, they just pop over to the force plates, do two quick hands on hip jumps uh, every single workout they do, and we get what we call like an RSI, um, and that that over time, once we get a normalized average for a person, we can track variations based on, oh, I've gone up, my nervous system's firing, I feel great today, or I'm way down, I've been down the last three sessions in a row. So it's like, that gives us a nice snapshot of neuromuscular fatigue on a given day. And then it, it doesn't take away the conversation with the athlete to say, how are you feeling today? You know, did you sleep well last night? All those things. But that's just like a nice level of objectivity that we can bring really easily and really minimally invasively to training. Um, and like, look, if I athletes have a whoop and stuff, like, you know, I've had a couple of our NBA, NBA guys wear whoop and it's like, if we, if everything else is in, in line, then it gives me an idea. But also what happens a lot of times I see is, oh, my whoop score was low for the 11th day in a row. So we just not going to train or like, yeah, right. the, there is an element of like, yeah, if you're going to go out till, if you're going to play Call of Duty till four in the morning, your whoop score is always going to be low. Right. So yeah. like, it's, it's not that hard to figure out that you're tired. You know what I mean? So there's there, like, don't get me wrong. I think objectivity is good, but I think that a lot of times people search for I'm sore. I need to go do cryo. I need to go do Normatec. I need to do all these things. Like you just need to sleep. Right. <laughs> your body, your body goes into recovery mode when you sleep and those things all can move the needle, but it's not like, you know, moving at 25%. It's moving at five to 10 and five to 10 is definitely a huge percentage in our world, but if you're missing the other 95%, then what's the point of doing cryo if you're not sleeping, right? So it's like, I, my goal is to get guys having good habits and good routines in terms of how they take care of themselves. And then how we maximize that last 5% of recovery beyond that. Um, we have cryotherapy chamber here that we use with our pre-draft guys a lot. and They like it to varying degrees. It's very, very cold. So <laughs> a lot of guys, with a lot of guys, it's like pulling teeth to force them in there. But, and that's, that's the kind of the sense of like, you know, we know they're going to have to do double days. We know that they're going to be doing a lot of work while they're here. And there's probably some benefit to jumping in there when we can once or twice a week. And and if nothing else, it's like, there's an element of like, if they feel like it helps, then it helps, right? Placebos work. There's research to show it, that it works well. And there's research to show that it doesn't necessarily do much. But if guys feel good doing it, that's what matters to me. Because they feel like they're being taken care of. They feel like they're recovering. They feel like they're doing what they need to do to, to prepare for the next day. That's enough for me, right? It's not it's not a detraction, detraction. And you can get athletes, too, that, like, over-focus on their, their wearables and things like that, right? Where, like, they won't do a training session if they're, uh, they're not – a whoop score isn't right. And you're like – sometimes you don't have time for that, right? Like, yeah. sure, if you have a whole year and you're planning for certain dates, but like, I promise you come Sunday that if your whoop score isn't right, you're not going to not play the game, right? Like it's, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, there's, there's, that's where like, the, you want some objective stuff to help you make decisions, but there's never going to be a lack of conversation. I've had a lot of times where we, we do our neuromuscular fatigue RSI jumps and guys are really low and they're like, no, I feel great. Like, let's train. Like, I'm good. I was like, well, nervous system says you're down. He's like, yeah, whatever. doesn't matter. Like, let's train. That's it's still good. good. And, and I've seen guys that are like, I feel terrible. And they set a personal best on that. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. so the, it never, the conversation never goes out the door. The subjectivity never goes out the door. But there's definitely, there are ways to make it more objective. But I don't think that a lot of those recovery techniques move the needle as much as really people like to think they do. Yeah. You mentioned the placebo effect. And I, I do wonder about that, too. 
So I, I, I have a whoop strap. I'm kind of into that nerdy type stuff. But like if I'm an NFL player and my whoop strap score is low the night before a game, I wonder how much psychologically that would play. Like, oh, I got a bad score. I'm going to play like crap today. And then that just right. translates into a bad performance. So it's almost probably right. better not to know. You have um, to care, but also not too much. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you, you want to do the right. Like you said, it's, it's about getting to the basics and doing the right things, though, that so your body's able and willing to perform. Um, you mentioned the force plates and, and tracking how the nervous system is operating. I'd be curious to know, like something like the combine or game days, are you guys able to set up the training in a way that can boost the nervous system's performance on game days? Like, do you have the timing down to a science? If you're able to track work with an athlete for a certain period of time, are you able to pretty much get that dialed in so you know how hard to push and when? Yeah. So, I mean, part of the, the upside of my job is that very rarely do I have to prepare for game day, right? Like right. most of the, what it's I get is guys in the off, is an off season. But, but that being said, there is a ton of research around doing neuromuscular priming before any sort of like sport or competition. Right. So like if you're a practitioner working with the player in season, you know, yeah, there, there is such thing as a priming session and that can be as far away as, you know, 24 to 48 hours away from the session, but the closer, the better in some senses. Um, but yeah, there is such thing as like doing like a really, really low volume, really high intensity, um, minimally fatiguing training session that's really short before a match that can actually boost nervous system output for sure and prepare we call it like a priming session so like yeah that is a thing that can definitely be done if you're if you're an athlete in that sense but for us it's about understanding trends in the long term and like yeah there might be some competitions we need to prepare for and we can track trends and how they um how they react to fatigue over time so like you know when i was working with some olympic level or olympic trials level swimmers a few years back you know we did this kind of like excel spreadsheet alongside our um our rsi monitoring on our force plates and like, we would track everything they did in terms of like time duration which gave us a basic score of, of load to go off of and we tracked that over a period of like six months and then any trends in that would be something that we used later leading up to trials where we'd be like okay you handled all of this load and all of this intensity up to x amount so in the two or three months leading up to trials and we want to try and stay away from this level of load that we're exceeding for you so that you're as fresh as possible in all your sessions and then you're totally fresh going into trials um it, it's there is definitely ways to track trends over time and be still getting stimulus and training leading up to competition without blowing the doors off and i think the, the the technology gives you an ability to do that much more objectively in a lot of senses but yeah i think i think priming is a really cool thing i think it's you know, it's, if nothing else, it's getting you into a nice game day, game day routine and getting your body moving, your nervous system ready to move as opposed to getting warmed up two hours before the game or an hour before the game. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, moving from the individual to the collective. So P3's mm -hmm. done a lot in terms of team-wide data. And right. I would be curious to hear your thoughts. I think of football as being one of the last sports to get on the analytics and data train. I mean, even right. like the stuff they show fans, it's like how fast a guy is running down the sideline, right. uh, which doesn't really tell you much other than he's really fast. <laughs> um, you know, meanwhile, baseball's got, you know, exit velocity and RPMs right. and spin uh, rate, 
Spin rate, yeah. Football just seems to be behind the times. And, and I think that, well, for me personally, it would be very important to know how a guy can perform on the field because you can make that a selling point to a team. Like, yeah, this guy's 40 time might not be great, but he plays faster because of X, Y, and Z or, you know, right. whatever whatever it might be. I also think it would be good for teams to understand that because it would give you, I think, a better sense of how to train your teams, strength and conditioning coach, you have 53 guys on your roster. Right. It's got to be difficult to personalize that. But if you can understand some of these metrics, it might be a little bit easier. Um, I don't know if you're doing anything on the team side over at P3 or if you're mainly individual, mm -hmm. but I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on data and analytics, specifically in the team sports setting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you have a roster of 53, individualization is going to be trickier than it is with a roster of 14, right? Sure. That's just the nature of the reality. I don't think it means you can't do it though. Right. And, and there's, there's, is, I think it's one thing that is important to understand about individualizing a program is that like to say that you have 53 guys on the roster and that every single one of them will be entirely different in every sense of the word. It's probably not true. Right. They've been if your DBs have been DBs their whole life, they're probably going to share some certain characteristics. So like, you know, maybe my DBs are going to do some higher velocity sprinting and but like all of them will do things that they need for their their sport. But then I can take a look at one or two little things that maybe the program only looks different in two ways. But that's still individualized, right? That's still something that's benefiting the individual specifically based on their needs. It doesn't mean that from the beginning to the end, their entire program is different. You know, when every time I've worked, even when I work with groups, like we have like a pre-draft group when we do it, we get about 10 guys at a time. And like, you know, even with us, like it's, there's, that's a lot of guys training at one time with 10 different programs. But if all of my guys come in with tight anterior hips, patella tendinopathy, and like tight ankles, then those three guys that have those three things, they can do the same, pretty much the same workout in a lot of senses, right? They're going to be individualized to a little bit more extent than that, but like they can do the same warm up, they can do the same mobilities, they can do these same these things that they are commonalities. And you see that a lot with, with people that have played the same sport. You know, you're going to see if you have a middle linebacker that's six foot three and 250 pounds, and another guy that's been playing middle linebacker right next to him for 10 years, they're going to share a lot of commonalities and the things that they may or may not need. There's going to be something that makes them different for sure but it's like if they all if, if i have my middle linebacker group do hang cleans and box jumps and then the guy that has tight hamstrings does a mobility for his hamstring and the guy that has tight anterior hip or hip flexors does a mobility for his hip flexor that's an individualized program that that's giving them something that they need that's separate from each other i think a lot of times coaches get trapped in this concept of like window dressing things to look more individualized when they're just really picking a different exercise that's just skinning a cat a different way mm -hmm. um so it's like there are ways to make your life easier in a team setting. Like, yeah, I worked in college sports for a little brief six, seven month window in between my internship and when I was hired full time here. And I applied this model to all of my teams. We did it with track and field, volleyball. Right. It just doesn't mean that every single person did something entirely different. And with swim teams, you know, I, I couldn't with 40 guys, I mean, 30 women and 30 men total. You know, it's like I could only do so much with one coach. But like it didn't mean that they that these groupings didn't occur, right? That that right. based on our assessment, we found these five groupings within stuff. And it was somewhat self-selected with something like swimming, where your stroke precludes you to doing something different. But with like volleyball, we had three different groups, right? There's 
14 girls on the roster, I think, or 15 girls on the roster, something like that. And they had, we had four separate subsets of people that had similar commonalities and certain issues. And they all had their different programs. There was some commonalities between the program, but they were broken in different groups to fix on something unique about their assessment. So there is an ability to do it. It's just about not biting off more than you can chew. Right? Yeah. With 53 guys, you can definitely have, you know, if I have my DBs, I have my two groups of DBs, my guys that are really great accelerators and really great top end speed guys or whatever it may be. There's, there's ways to make subsets and groups within a team setting that is making it more individualized and smarter, but you can't just do 53 different programs. You'll never have time to coach and do all that. Yeah. Um, when it comes to like, you mentioned a couple of things there, like tight hips or tight hamstrings, mm -hmm. um, are you guys utilizing what I would call like the big three power lifting movements, you know, squat, deadlift, bench? And, and are you, are you use, are you using your data and your like movement expertise in those individual lifts or is it, is it not as like basic as that? I would say that it's not as basic as that. Right. So like, okay. I would say that those are movements that have value. Right. They're like, you know, the, the way that I kind of or we look at um, strength exercises is we kind of have these big um, buckets that everything falls into, whether it's a squat, whether it's a hinge, whether it's a push, whether it's a pull, whether it's a single leg or a double leg. We have these kind of big buckets we throw things into. And there's a lot of different ways that we can achieve a similar stimulus within those buckets. So like just because I want someone to do a hinge to develop posterior chain or power in a different plane doesn't mean that they're going to do just the big three classical deadlift, right? There's, there's going to be some people that that makes perfect sense for anthropometrically. And there's gonna be some people that it makes, couldn't make less sense for, right? Sure. If I'm getting someone like, you know, DeMarcus Cousins, large, large man, right. That like is going to have to go a long way down to pick up a bar off the ground. Is the juice worth the squeeze? It's not to say that he couldn't do it, but the risk to reward ratio is something you have to weigh up as a coach. And like, I'm definitely not afraid of having like basketball guys lift weights, right? Like it's, it's something that, that is often missed. And there's this kind of thought process that just because you're tall and you have tight hips, doesn't mean you can't go through a big range of motion. It just has to be picked. The, the movement has to be picked for that person. You have to be, look at, be like, yeah, look, this is great. You're squatting really low. You're doing these really great, this really great movement with good load. I don't have any fear of that. But then if you, if you put them in a bad position, the risk is definitely high. So understanding good and bad positions is definitely something you have to do. And I think that would hold true in football, right? That like, yeah. there's going to be guys that are in great positions to do certain things and really poor positions in others. So like, for me, I, I don't necessarily have like one exercise I need to do to achieve a certain goal. It's more like I've got this, I want to get some heavy hinge work. I've got seven, eight, nine different variations I can do to get there for different reasons. Maybe someone doesn't tolerate bilateral RDLs as well as they tolerate single leg RDLs. Right. And that's, there's, there's reasons for that. So like, it's really more about like an even almost like higher level view than a specific exercise and looking at it from a specific physical quality or movement that I want to do. Would the same be true then uh, in that vein, you know, like creating strength through the entire range of motion or are you of the belief you know, we want to, we don't want to push the limits to potentially get hurt in training either. Do you, do you understand what I'm asking? Maybe I'm not asking that great, but. I think that, yeah, you know, I get what you're saying. I think that there is such thing as going to extremes, 
right? You see, you see guys, you see like stuff like, you know, the knees over toes stuff where you're going to these right. really extreme ranges of motion and oftentimes under load. Uh, that's not something that I value, right? I, there, there, there's definitely ironclad science to prove that going through greater ranges of motion is going to improve strength. And there's obviously going to be weaker and stronger points within a movement, but it's, for me, it's about good quality range of motion so long as it's not putting you at injury for risk. I mean, risk for injury. So it's like, I don't need everyone to squat low to a specific point. I need you to squat to the specific point that you can control with good technique. So yeah. if one guy is six inches lower, fantastic, do it. You look great. You're not, I don't see this as a risk for injury. And if that additional six inches to somebody else just puts them in a huge weird back position or big pelvic shift or whatever that may be, then that's my job as a coach to be like, yeah, that's too low for your mobility. Maybe we, maybe we aim to get to a lower range of motion, or maybe we are like, no, that's good. Like, I think that's enough range of motion. We can, we can challenge strength in other ways that, you know, the, the be all end all is not just going through squats through range of motion. You know, there's, there is some value to doing partial range squats, but with much heavier weight or whatever it may be. It just depends on what we're trying to develop as a physical quality. Um, the last area that I want to touch on, cause I think again, P threes on the cutting edge of this is injury recovery. So an athlete is now injured. Um, you guys, again, this seems like such an obvious and novel concept, but I don't think it is utilized. You guys actually go back to what the biomechanical problem is. And I think about this even in my life. So I, I lift weights basically to look good with a shirt off and to not get fat. Right. But even so, like if I, Same. like, if I do that, well, and you're in California, it's even more important for you. I get yeah. to wear sweatshirts six months out of the year. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but even when, you know, like I'm going through a lift, I might tweak something. I'm not, I'm not as young as I wish I was anymore, but all I do is I take a couple of days off and I don't ever address the, the underlying problem. Right. Um, which I think is actually probably quite common, even at the higher levels For of sure. sport. hundred um, percent. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys actually, you know, address problems when an injury does right. occur? Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely run the gamut of what we get here. We get everything from catastrophic injury where we're going to be involved in the full six month process of being, of returning to play. But then the, we also get like the, minor meniscal tear tweak that we're like okay like this is something we can work through right that like this is maybe a, a doctor is going to tell you to have surgery we don't necessarily agree let's try this conservative route for a couple of weeks and move you slowly back into movements and loads and see how you do with it um i've seen a whole gamut of injuries from acl tears to reshaping a tibial plateau to you know, changing, you know, making changes to people's femoral heads so that their hip joint moves a little bit better. There's, a, we get the a massive gamut of different things. And so, you know, the, the question is always when someone comes in for first and foremost off of injury is, do we have an assessment on them before injury? Do we get them in here before injury? Because that, that's my, that's my template, right? I know what you looked like before you were hurt, right? So that's the first thing we have to try and return somebody to is, where you were before you got hurt. And then we have to assess what you looked at before you got hurt, right? So if it was a contact injury, obviously we're probably less concerned about your injury, your likelihood of re-injury because if you get crushed with a helmet in the side of the knee, then no matter how strong you are, that's just going to go. So if 
your assessment beforehand looks great, but if we have someone that had an ACL rehab and it was a non-contact ACL and we had an assessment on them beforehand, then, you know, returning to what you were probably isn't good enough, right? Like we probably have to return you to something different that looks better than it was. And what happens too is kind of cool in the AC, at least in longer term rehab stuff is it, it, it takes, it's a longer break than an athlete would ever take ever on their own, right? Aside from a pandemic, I guess, where you have right. no choice but to not play. But in, nor in you know, the last hundred years before that, um, they don't take six to nine month breaks, right? So you have time to go back and address all these things that you just lived with that maybe were risk factors, but doesn't mean I'm going to stop playing my sport, that now I have time to rest, get better at other parts of my body, understand that if I tear my ACL, that only my ACL is is hurt, right? Like that my glutes and hamstrings are still working, that my other leg is completely uninjured, that my trunk and upper body is completely uninjured. And, you know, there's there's so much of the concept of like, in, in those, these catastrophic injuries to just to totally shut everything down so that the system is so worn out and not adapted to training. By the time they return, that those t first two months of training are so hard for people because they've just sat around doing nothing. So. A big part is, is our ability to work around injury while something is healing. So like, you know, we get guys and, and girls back into the gym after ACL tears, you know, as soon as like a month, doesn't mean that you're like running on your ACL knee, but it means that you're doing some stuff on your non-injured leg, doing some abs, doing some more body, keeping your body moving and keeping blood. Like I think one of the under undersold pieces of like getting people moving when you're in a post-surgical situation is it's going to increase the speed of recovery, right? You're moving blood around the body. That's how the nutrients get to systems right. that need to be repaired. So the more we can move that in a safe way to encourage recovery, it's going to help that transition and speed things up a little bit. Um, but for us, it's, it's, okay, what were the risk factors beforehand? Do you have that? And then then we use the technology to inform decisions. So, so we worked with a, uh, a college soccer player a few years ago and he tore his ACL in the preseason. Kind of like a weird hybrid contact, non-contact scenario. And he wasn't a guy that had big risk factors in our assessment. And um, at the six month mark, his team had made it into the Sweet 16. And he's like, it was kind of like up until that point, the season was a write-off. Right. And then all of a sudden the season's extended a little longer than they had expected for that year. And then suddenly the window opens to be like, can I play this year? And, you know, in my head, I'm like, eh, sweet 16, we'll, we'll see. Team gets into the elite eight. So he's pushing at that point where it's almost seven months and he's starting to look pretty good. I'm like, look, man, this is too subjective of a decision to let it be decided by whether I feel good or your physical therapist feels good. Let's let's test you. Let's put you on the plates and look what you look, see what you look like and see what your ground contacts look like, see what your asymmetry looks like. And we'll let the numbers aside. They'll make an objective decision on this. And what ended up happening was that they got into that elite eight and we had tested him and he just was not ready, right? He had this massive asymmetry. He had these interesting ground contacts on the side that he did not have before. And it was very easy to paint the picture to him be like, you know, look, I, I would love to have you play, but look at these three things. These three things are something that's going to put you at a higher risk. So. I think the call is to not push it, but it, it's, I'm very fortunate to have technology like that to, to inform my decisions. But yeah, I think there's a, a manner, a huge amount of, of uh, a window to utilize that window of injury to get better in terms of, you know, once you're, especially if you're like an ACL rehab, that time period after the four to five month mark where you're able to sprint, you're able to run, you're able to lift, you're able to do all these things 
you can get a lot better as an athlete in these time periods where you're able to push your strength, get your knee back to normal, start to learn better change of direction mechanics and a slower speed and stuff like that. So like, yeah, like I've seen ACL tear athletes come back better athletes than they were before because they just have a time and period to spend on physical development they didn't have before. I think a perfect example of that is Conor McGregor for any fight fans out there. I mean, he literally yeah. snapped his leg in half. And right. if you look at him on Instagram, he looks huge. I mean, he took the time. Huge. And um, I don't know if he's going to be able to get back down to 155. He's probably going to have to cut a lot of that weight off anyway. But uh, yeah. my point being, he took the time off to work on his upper body. And now he's walking. Right. It's less than six months later. It's kind of incredible. He's not, he's not just sitting around, right? That, no. that, that was something that he set in his head was like, regardless of what I can and can't do, I'm going to do something. And there's a huge benefit to that, especially mentally. Sure. Yeah. He's a competitor and it, it keeps you on, on that edge. I think back to what you just said about your soccer player example, if he would have been ready to go, I think of the level of confidence that that objective data would prove to him too. I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough that I know I've never had a knee injury, but I can only imagine the first time you step on the field after going through what you went through in the back of your head, it has to be, is this thing going to hold up? And now if right. you have that objective data, like, yes, we're on pace, this is, everything's good to go. It's just one less thing to worry about and you can just focus on playing. I think that's gotta be huge. There's this huge switch that happens too for uh, like the objectivity to say like, you look the same. Like there's zero fear. Cause you know, if he had come back in the final four or something and like, and I had made that, that call, I would be watching that game with my, you know, through my fingers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would be terrified. Did I do, did I make the right decision or the wrong decision? But there's also this huge switch that happens like first tackle, right? Like if it's soccer, football, the first time they get hit hard and nothing bad happened. Right. right. They're like, that suddenly people turn that mental switch of like, I am okay. Yeah. That there's there's that what there's always that one hurdle for people that like they need that test to be like yep i'm good this feels normal and they just almost like take off and run and they act normal again but the mental component there is huge and the object you're exactly right the objectivity allows me to have strong confidence that you look like you did before and if not better like you're good to go trust it do you think so you're in tune with the data is there an explosion of non-contact injuries or is it just our perception of non-contact injuries? Um, and if there is, what is your sense for the reason why? I mean, I think that's a great question that I don't fully have the answer to. Okay. I think that, I think that our, um, awareness of them is so different now, right? That I don't have the objective data to say if, if ACL tears are happening more often than not. You know what I mean? It's it, but it's it does seem like certain things are occurring more often than not. I think when you look at things like tendon ruptures, like Achilles, Achilles. stuff, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Right, there seems to be there seems to be some sort of increase happening there. Um, at least in football, you know, it seems like we see it a lot more often than we used to in football, um, and. It, it seems like that may be part of like athletes being bigger, stronger and faster, but also not training adequately around the ligaments and tendons to keep them resilient. Right. So it's like, it, I think there's something to be said about that side of it, but there's also so many factors that go into it. Like, you know, I worked with um, Eric Berry for a long time and like, you know, there, there's like 
they, we assess Eric and like, you know, a lot of the things even just acutely after uh, rehab were like, not that long after surgery, you're still like incredible, right? You're like in terms of an athlete and you're like, how is this possible for someone that's just had his, you know, Achilles reattached? So they, but you see that like the systems that these guys are working with are just so incredibly powerful that like this one small portion of it can only hold up for so long under time. You, you look at KD is, you know, this, a similar example of like incredible athlete, but is there a lot of focus around um, specific things? So like with the ACL tears, I think that my personal opinion is that like, it's just happening at, there's more awareness of when it does happen and the time yeah. periods of when it can happen. And like, you get these like, weird, you get these like weird, almost like unrealistic expectations. I think you can thank Adrian Peterson for that. Of like, oh, I'll be back in six months. And it's like, he is not the norm. No, that is not a normal human that's able to come back in that time period and play without a brace. Like people are have this like artificial thing. It's like, it's just not the case. He's the outlier in that sense. So like, I think that's one thing that people don't seem to understand, but it, I think that there is evolving science around ligament and tendon training specifically. And in that uh, a lot of times that there's probably uh, a lack of that, that classical strength training may not be encompassing everything around the ligaments and tendons. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of one of those things that, that, that the science is starting to evolve. I think Keith Barr, is a great researcher is doing a lot of great research on this sort of stuff um, where like there are ways to facilitate greater tendon and ligament stiffness, which can be useful in terms of performance. And there are ways to encourage tendon like compliance or kind of increase cross-linking that kind of makes the tendon stronger. And those are different things. And that's really more of like a longevity and injury prevention sort of thing. Um, and there's like this continuum that exists between the two. That's something that hasn't been focused on in training really at all maybe before the last five years so i think that you know that there's an element of like not enough of that bleeding into programming for training for certain things that if i'm a middle linebacker it, it's or a db it's non-negotiable for me to have to run backwards and plant and run forward yeah right yep. so like i need to have the ligaments and tendons to be prepared for that setup so like if we're not doing heavy high force isometrics to the achilles then eventually at some point this the system's probably going to break we need to strengthen it somehow so yeah i think with certain injuries it's probably prevalence is happening a little bit more just based on how freakish some of the athletes are these days and then some it's just maybe more our awareness of it happening more often that and there's so many injuries that you just never hear about right oh, like for sure time missed on certain things is like you can have so many guys with minor meniscal tears or just nondescript knee pain that are missing a game here and there and you don't hear anything about it or guys that are just making it through an entire season and they're like yeah like i've tweaked this in 20 games into an 82 game season and it just is what it is and so like it, it's the catastrophic ones catch our eye especially when it's superstars but it's like you think a lot of that also has to do with volume of, of training or rather volume of a competition right like i mean mm -hmm. nfl season now is what 17 games 16 yeah, games they, they added the uh, 18 weeks but with the bye every everybody plays 17 games 17 games right so it's like you're getting into 17 car crashes over a six month period right and like your, your body is gonna get there i don't think there is anything such as being fully healthy at the end of an nfl season it's just can mm -hmm. you still function and if you go to the Super and, Bowl, you uh, you play four more games on top of that. So now you're getting that right, crash I mean, 21 times. Right. And that's why you look at like something like LeBron is like a medical marvel almost. You know what I mean? People are like, 
oh, he's breaking down. I'm like, well, he's played an additional three or four seasons if you count the playoffs and the finals on top of that. The fact that he's made it this far without very many soft tissue injuries is crazy. It is. Right? So it's like the the amount of volume and demands over a period of time is like, you know, there's this constant talk about do we lengthen the season? Do we shorten the season? Do we take out back-to-backs? Do we minimize travel? I think those things are all part of it. And the more the grain, these games grow globally, right? The more demand there is on the athlete, right? So if I'm flying to London to do a game, great for the, for the game as a whole and growing the game, probably not ideal for the individual athlete in terms of performance and their sleep and their recovery and all these things. Same thing with an NBA player, right? If I'm, if I'm playing a back-to-back, that is not ideal recovery, Mm-mm. right? If I play 40 minutes one night and I fly to Milwaukee and play another 40 minutes the next night on terrible sleep, then like that's when injuries occur, right? Then, so I think there's probably an element of condensed schedule. And I think that maybe is playing into some of these injuries, but yeah, I think that they're probably on an individual basis in terms of like maybe Achilles is happening more often, but maybe ACL tear is just something that we're noticing more often. Yeah. I mean, from the NFL standpoint, they just went to 17 games this year. I can guarantee they're never going back to 16. And in fact, if anything, right. they'll probably go to 18. Um, and then you had, and then you had the, yeah, the the games in London, the Thursday night games now. It, right. I about that whole, that whole addition, the Thursday, I mean, that, that whole, I mean, the amount of times that like there's huge statistics around like teams that lose Thursday night games, you know what I mean? Yep. It's like, and oh. it's crazy. And now with COVID, you got, you know, you got to sit out 48 to who knows, you know, if you're unvaccinated 10 days, you could miss two games and that it's, um, that's yeah, a, that's a tough, tough thing too. Is like on individual athletes. I think that's a, a really interesting point of like the whole COVID and injury thing is like, okay, so you get shut down for 10 days or 48 hours, whatever you're shut down for, you miss a game. You've missed like important stimulus in the middle of your season. So if I, you know, if I'm a wide receiver and I sit out a game, I don't get my high velocity sprinting that I would normally get in the middle of the season. And then all of a sudden, maybe I go and I hit five more go routes than I normally do. And all of a sudden I've had no stimulus the last week and I've doubled my load the next week. Good luck with your hamstrings and calves at that point, right? Like something, yeah. uh, there's a high likelihood that something happens in those big spikes return. And like, sometimes rest is great. If you're not, you know, if there's a lot of guys that seem to be getting sick and having no symptoms whatsoever. So it almost ends up being more of a break than anything else. But there's definitely something to be said about there's uh, Tim Gabbett's done a lot of research around the acute versus chronic ratio of workload. So like when you don't continue to have those, those dosages of, of workload consistently chronically throughout your season, and then you suddenly have a big spike in workload the next week, then that's when injuries happen. So there's, that's a whole nother part of the equation for sure. Right there. Is that the reason why there's always a rash of hamstring injuries for training camp and week one and week two? 100%. Interesting. Right. That like, you see like you you see the amount of volume and it's like there's this huge uh, for me as a as a coach i'm super conflicted when we look at stuff like that right because in one sense it's my job to prepare you for whatever you're going to have to do whether or not that's smart so like the rational side of my coaching brain is saying they shouldn't be doing this anyway so why why would i why would i prepare you for it but the other side of my brain is to do what's the best for my athlete I need to prepare them for it. So it's, yeah, I think that you see a lot of guys that A, don't adequately prepare for camp, but generally just training camp in general, it's two days, whatever, in every sport, it seems like it's always like two days. And you're like, why? Like, why can't we just train once a day intensely 
and do mm -hmm. what we need to do. Or is if that two a day is a walkthrough is the second practice and the first one is intense practice, you have these huge spikes in volume that people can't survive, right? It's exactly what you're saying is that you see the first, second week of camp as guys go down with hamstring injuries because they haven't been, even if they have been preparing well, they haven't been doing 30, 40 routes every right. day, right? So it's like, it would almost be negligent for that but it's it is something that that you talk about where the nfl needs to start getting smarter and like i think you you see you see some of that you know like i watched some of hard knocks this year and they had um dak on like a gps monitor and monitoring how much he was running returning to play and stuff like that but then there has to be buy-in right it has to right. be guys that, that buy into the fact that yes i do need to do less there's a lot of guys that don't want to rest and you need to understand that being a superhero today means that you can be a hero 16 games from now, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they, you got to, sometimes you need to sacrifice the short term for the long term. And I think that like, you, you know, someone like Tom Brady is probably someone that understands that better than anybody else. Right. That like, yeah. we're playing a long game here. We're playing chess, not checkers. And you can use data to do a better job of that around camp and understanding that, you know, if we have everyone on GPS monitors, then we know how much they've run, how much they've run at high, high intensity. And then we know that, okay, that we need to take a break because of how, how many high thresholds we got to and the next day is a low day. And then the next day is a high day is you can have high, you can have big, big spikes in workload, but you need to do a lot for the drop-off that's going to happen afterwards. And if you're smart about how you pre program that, as opposed to just going high, 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 you can still do those intense training sessions, but you're, you're, allowing the change is going to happen afterwards in a smarter way. That's um, really fascinating. And I think about that in the context too, where most players don't play in the preseason anymore. Um, so, you know, <laughs> right. it's one, one thing to go through it in practice. It's a whole nother day when your adrenaline's pumping and you're playing in front of 80,000 people. Um, very true. Fascinating. Well, Hey, this has been um, awesome. I really thank you for taking the yeah. time to do this. Um, if people want to find you, do you want to give them your, your Twitter or, or would you rather be a gray man? I have, no, no, it's okay. If they want to find me, I'm on Instagram at John Flake. Nothing special about it. Honestly, I have no idea what my Twitter handle is. I assume, I think it's the same. I, like, I, I found it because I, I was going to ask you, uh, some questions cause you had some Marvel takes on there. Uh, so oh, I was yeah. going to. That's my was, other passion in life is Star Wars and Marvel. Yep. So I'm a, I'm a nerd too. So I was going to ask you some Marvel takes, but um, please, but please uh, do if you want. Ad, Adam's going to call me here in a couple minutes to actually talk oh, about yeah. an athlete. So I, I don't sure. want to miss his call. Um, For sure. Well, again, thanks. If people want to find me on Twitter, Impact Sports Management, uh, follow my Substack for my daily articles, Impact Sports Management newsletter, uh, and then Instagram at Impact Sports underscore football. John, thank you. This was this was awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Anytime. I'm happy to happy to share the knowledge. Okay. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everybody. Love, 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 love.